You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Verse 1 of Romans 11 says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture said of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I'd reserve for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we don't want to be like uh, the the people spoken of here by the prophet Isaiah and by David, just people that when they hear, they don't really hear. Uh, the people that when they heard Jesus' parables just walked away just uh, with disinterest. Uh, but Lord, we pray that uh, every individual that has come to this park today would have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive. And Lord God, that we would see that your faithfulness to Israel uh, shows us how faithful you are to us as well. So, God, we worship you in the studying of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It wasn't that long, Frank. <laughs> I know. I've been having fun with Frank these days. Heather has a little surprise for you, Frank, at the last worship. So, just get ready. <laughs> Well, as we come to uh, chapter 11, we look at God's purpose and plan for the nation of Israel. And uh, if that's all I said, then many of you would probably just get up and go get in your cars and drive away. Because what does that have to do with you? <laughs> uh, well, we see God's uh, task, uh, calling an election to the nation of Israel. And we see in chapter 10, God's uh, still being rejected by the nation of Israel. But we see in chapter 11 that one day... All Israel will be saved. We see in these chapters that as God is faithful to Israel, uh, that he's also faithful to us Gentiles as well. Even when they've rejected him, he then took the good news of the gospel and of redemption that was to those that rejected him in Israel, and he brought it over to the Gentiles, which probably 99.9 of us uh, out here in this park are just that, Gentiles. And... Uh, and we see that salvations come to the Gentiles. Even through one nation's disobedience, blessings come to the whole world. And uh, it has come to the Gentiles. And uh, we're so thankful to that. But we're going to see in the weeks to come that now that we are in love with Jesus and have been partaking of the uh, blessings and privileges of having a Savior and knowing our God who created us, our relationship and depth of love for our God should provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy, and will provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy, that they will see what we have in our passion and love for our Savior, and how he's poured out gifts and favor and blessings upon us. And they'll say, well, how come we don't have that? <laughs> how come we don't have that? And so as we've looked at all this, and we've looked at God's uh, election of Israel, but, but many of them have turned their back on him, you know, and, and rejected him as their Messiah, uh, we come to what Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, Jones called, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a physician-turned-preacher, says that we're entering now in chapter 11 into the realm of ultimate mystery. Let us therefore take off our shoes from our feet, for the place in which we stand is holy ground. This is a passage that must be approached with reverence and humility and with care. 
as we looked at God uh, at Israel's present state of rejecting the Messiah, but one day they will all be saved. They will all come to know him as the Lord. Uh, as we looked at last week, if the majority of Israel who partook as chapter 9 verse 5 says of the blessings and privileges in the Old Testament, they had the uh, temple and the tabernacle, they had the sacrifices, they got to minister in the tabernacle and to the Lord. Uh, they had the patriarchs and the early fathers. Uh, they had the written word given to them on tablets written with the finger of God. I mean, they had massive and crazy privileges. Uh, and yet the majority of them uh, have turned their back on God and are in hell at this very moment. And so it calls into question, you know, has God cast away his people totally and entirely? For this new group called the Gentiles, and also the question that we'll look at next week, did these people stumble and trip up so bad that now they have fallen beyond recovery? And so if you're taking notes, remember that the theme of this chapter is that there is still an Israelite remnant at present. There's an Israelite remnant who actually love Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, or if you go over there on the tour with us in a couple years, uh, Yeshua Mashiach, as they say over there. Jesus, or Joshua the Messiah. Uh, there's still a remnant that believe in him. And this remnant will lead to a blessing for the whole world. And so verse 1, has God cast away his people Israel? Certainly not. For Paul says, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of of Benjamin. Now one might have expected this question of has God totally cast away these people since they have rejected him? Has he totally rejected or disowned his people as they've been a disobedient and contrary people? People who, who have rejected the pleadings and the beckonings and the callings of their God and and we looked at that last week. We're not going to spend a ton of time at that. But Paul's emphatic answer with an exclamation point at the end of it is what? Sure. Certainly not. It's one of the strongest statements in the New Testament. No way, Jose, is what Paul is saying. In the, no, that's not real language there. But uh, no way, follows or whatever. You know, uh, it's not uh, happened. And he's going to argue for that, that God's not done with Israel in this chapter. And as we looked at last week, there's four things that he gets into in this chapter. He gets into his own personal testimony, the personal proof that God's not done with the Jews. He gets into the historical proof. Next week, we'll look at the dispensational proof and the scriptural proof. We read in the Psalms, chapter 89, verse 31 last week, that God says, if they break my statutes and don't keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will not utterly be taken from Israel, nor will I allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah is what the psalmist says. It means think about it. Think about it. Think about my faithfulness. Ten chapters later, Paul, or, uh, the psalmist writes, For the Lord will not cast out his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And there's proof behind that. As Paul gets into it, he, he lays out his personal testimony as he says, For I'm an Israelite. If, if God's done with the Israelites, what about me? I am an Israelite. And I'm going to specify what I am. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm a Benjamite. I'm legit. Too legit to quit. <laughs> I'm, I'm a literal Israelite. One of the best of my day. As far as Judaism is concerned, he gets into that Philippians chapter 3, and he says, and I love Jesus. Are there Jews for Jesus? Paul says, 
Yeah. And I'm one of them. We exist. In saving Paul, God saved a Jew. In using Paul, God has used a Jew. We looked at last week how Paul has said, you know, I'm, I'm really the best of all Jews, and I'm also the worst. <laughs> I'm the worst sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. And we looked at 1 Timothy 1 last week, how Paul says, when God saved me, he set forth an example. He set forth an example that God can save the Jews, but he also can save the chief of sinners. And we kind of went away from the text last week, and we looked at some of our more modern history. And we, uh, if you were here last week or weren't here, I encourage you to listen online at the testimony of uh, all of the uh, Hitler's right-hand men who were brought to trial before Nuremberg and how a chaplain from the U.S. Army named Henry Garek was sent in to spread the gospel to these 11 men who were destined to be hung because of their crimes against humanity. And he ended up leading many of them to Christ in the good news of the gospel kind of got in depth into some of that testimony of God's saving grace, even to the worst of sinners, even to those that seem have rejected God, God beyond any form of forgiveness. And we, we got a little bit away out of specifically what God was doing with Israel, but we come back this week and we say, you know what, if God can save Paul, or Saul of Tarsus was his name, if God can save, you know, uh, Von Trappen and Von Rudolph, and, you know, and some of those uh, right-hand men of the Third Reich, that God could save the worst of us, and even his own people who he's called uh, out of Israel. And so there's this personal proof for Paul's life. Let's move on now this morning. That was a little bit of review for you guys. And then we get to verse 2 where we see more of the historical proof from the nation of Israel itself. Paul gives us a quick history lesson to demonstrate that God is not done with the people of Israel. And let's look at verses 2 through 4. God has not cast away his people or whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads or makes intercession with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they want to kill me. They want to seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I hope you've read this account in your uh, reading of the scripture in the past. If you haven't, you can go to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Awesome chapter, great read. Even you uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers would love it action-packed, but it's the story of Elijah and how Elijah stood up for Yahweh, stood up for God in the midst of his own nation to turn to worship pagan gods, the pagan god of Baal. And so in Paul's day, the fact that most of the nation has rejected God is no proof that God's rejected his people. In our day, 2012, the fact that still most of the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus is still not proof that God has uh, rejected or cast away his people. And we look at uh, Elijah's testimony, how he felt like he was the only guy left in the whole nation who still was a servant of God. Could you imagine that? I mean, you probably feel like that a little bit at your workplace, like, I'm the only Christian here. But can you imagine feeling like you're the only Christian in your nation? I mean, there was none of this going on. <laughs> none of this corporate gathering of believers. None of this core group discipleship stuff happening or texts of encouragement. See how you're doing in your walk with the Lord or see how you're doing in that struggle with that sin that you've got in your... No, I'm it. I'm it. And you remember chapter 18. Elijah led this incredible victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal where he challenged them to an Old Testament kind of duel. You know, he drew a line in the sand. And he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, then worship him. Or if all is God, worship him. But don't go back and forth. Don't be lukewarm. God hates that. So he says, let's do this. Let's bring it down. Let's test it. 
So they both, uh, both camps build an altar. And the prophets of Baal build an altar. And they slaughter a bull and they put it on the altar. And Elijah gives them many hours to have their God light their altar on fire. And they pray and they dance and they cut themselves and they cry out. And the day had gone by when Elijah started laughing at them. And he said, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Or maybe he's on a business trip. Or maybe he's going to the bathroom, he actually says. And he kind of makes fun of them. Maybe Baal has some indigestion. And, uh, and he says, all right, you guys are done. And he kills his bull. And he rebuilt the altar to the Lord on Mount uh, Carmel. And if we ever go there together, we'll go to the very spot where this altar was built. And, uh, and he digs a trench around this altar, and he commands his servants to bring up about, you know, some 50 gallons of water or something, and dumps water all over his sacrifice, and it fills the trench, and, you know, if you had a, a Zippo lighter, you could have light this thing, just to prove that it was God that would light it, and he says, all right, Lord, show your stuff, and what does God do? He sends down fire from heaven, and the fire consumes the sacrifice, and laps up all the water in the trench, and he licks up all the dust off the altar. I mean, this altar was sterile after God was done with it. And God was shown to be the true one and only God that day. And that day, Elijah cut the heads off of 400 prophets of Baal. And wouldn't you think that was a day of victory? I mean, wouldn't you kind of do this thing and be like, woohoo, go God. And you'd just be encouraged, right? Well, Elijah was discouraged. He was threatened by Jezebel. She said, by the time the day is up, you'll be killed. And so he runs down about 400 miles south of Israel to Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given. And Elijah hides in a cave. And he's very depressed and he's very discouraged, even after a great victory of God. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing down here? Why are you depressed? What are you just doing waiting around in this cave? And Elijah says, Lord, and he just kind of has a little pity party. I'm the last guy there is. Even though you're, you've shown yourself true, you're obviously done with your people. I'm the last guy. And God speaks this encouragement. It's called here by Paul the divine response. You're not the last one. I've got a remnant. I've got 7,000 guys who I'm hiding right now. They're hiding in caves, and Obadiah is feeding them. And, and I'm keeping them safe. And they have not bowed the knee to Baal yet. And Paul likens Elijah's day, and that seeming hopeless situation of no one else loving God, to his day. And we today can liken it to our day. And I've been to Israel, and I've seen there are very few Messianic Jews, but they're there. They're there. There's a remnant to this day. As we looked in chapter 9, Isaiah crying out that even though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant, these elected remnants of Israel will be saved. As Isaiah says there in chapter 9, verse 29, Unless the Lord of the armies, or the Lord of Sabaoth, had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. You guys remember when Sodom and Gomorrah were just obliterated by uh, fire and hail? And Isaiah said, man, that, that'd be us. We turned our back on God. But the God of the armies of heaven has left a remnant. I was sick last week. I kind of laid in my bed for a while and I read uh, a few different books and I read some of the minor prophets and it was just fun to read through the minor prophets and uh, to just read of the remnants in the minor prophets. I read the book of Amos. I got to chapter 5 verse 15. It says, Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. In the day of Amos, in the day of being a prophet to a wicked and rebellious people, it may be that the God, the God of Israel will be faithful and gracious 
and that remnant of Joseph. I read Micah chapter 2, the prophecy of Israel being restored, where he says, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Isn't that kind of exciting to think right now? I mean, here we are, Prineville, a bunch of Gentiles gathered together in a park. But God has a sovereign plan for a few Jews that are scattered around uh, America, huge Jewish population in New York City, over in Israel. In fact, at family camp, we had a, a Jewish man from our community join us for lunch and went out on the boat and went uh, for a boat ride. And I sat in the bow of my father-in-law's boat with this Jewish man. He's just Jewish by blood, not practicing. In fact, I educated him on a lot of the uh, history of Israel. And I told him about Jesus being the Messiah and how he's fulfilled all of these prophecies of the Messiah. He gave him the statistical probability of any one man doing that. And uh, and I told him, you know, I, I just went to Israel. I'd love to have you over and show you some slides of Israel. And got a call from him that he wants to meet him and his wife, come over to our house and look at Israel. And uh, I'm so excited because I get to share the gospel a Jew, you know, and it may be that this one guy from Prineville will be part of this remnant. So be praying for that. Be praying for this guy. Um, but God says, I will gather this remnant. They're out there. Just like they were in Paul's day. Just like they were there in Elijah's day. They're there in our day. And I will gather these people. I will put them together, Micah says, like sheep of the fold, like a flock. In the middle of their pasture, they will make a loud noise because there will be so many people, Micah says. That is so exciting. The good news for us is this. God is faithful to his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David. And he's faithful to his covenant to the Gentiles. He's faithful to his covenant to us as well. That if we believe on him, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his promise is this, we will not be put to shame. He's faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his promises. And so even now today, he's faithful to Israel. There are some today who are Jews for Jesus, who have not bowed their knee down to idols, who are not worshiping the temple as so many Jews are worshiping the actual stone structure of the temple they're trying to build. They're not worshiping the artifacts. They're not worshiping the land of Israel. They are worshiping Jesus to this very day. In Israel this year, we had a few gatherings where um, these Messianic Jews, these Israeli young men backpacking across their own country saw that we were worshiping Jesus and they came and just had to tell us that they were Jews who loved Jesus. And it's really cool to hear them say, we are Messianic Jews. We are Messianic Jews who believe in Jesus. We've had our sins washed away by the blood of the true and better lamb. And that was so exciting to hear from these uh, young men, these 18-year-old boys on the Mount Carmel was actually where they met us there. And so this remnant we read in verse 5. For some reason, I'm in 1 Corinthians 15 now. All right, that's a good chapter. Let's go there. We see that this remnant is according to the election of grace. Sovereignly elected by grace, not by work. By grace, not by race, as we looked at so in depth in chapter 9. Not even by their blood lineage, but by God's sovereign election of grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul asks the Corinthians, What makes you different from another? Or why do you act as though you haven't received salvation? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you not received it. This is a good caution to us throughout the rest of this section this morning that we as Christians should not boast as if we've worked for our salvation. That we should be 
humble knowing that we've received a gift of grace. We've not worked for it as if we could boast for it. We fall into that, don't we? We get so prideful. We lift ourselves up above some of the heinous sinners in our communities as if we were good and that's why God chose us. No, we were sinners going to the same hell as they were. But God sovereignly has elected us and poured out his grace upon us and now calls us to go out and tell those horrible sinners that we are sinners and they are sinners and we can all be saved by the grace of God. Don't boast as if you hadn't received it, as if you had worked for it. Lord Jones says, this brings us to a great point that it was because of what someone else has done that the remnant obtained it. This term emphasizes the one who elects rather than any choice made by the people. And so all the glory is to be given to God alone. When we speak of our salvation, man, there should be tears coming to our eyes. There should be a trembling in our voice because it's not me. It's not my hard work and determination and perseverance that has saved me. I don't understand it, but for some gracious reason, God has saved me. God has chosen me. God has given me beauty for ashes. He's given me strength for fear. He's given me gladness for mourning. He's given me strength for despair. He's brought good news to this poor soul. And I don't know why, but I know it's by grace. It's by grace. Well, verse 6, you guys ready for a little bit of a tongue twister? And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, a work is no longer works. Amen? Amen. I know you guys got that. I know you guys totally understood that. Let's listen to the New Living Translation. If you're a Bible app person, you can just click over there. Your New Living Translation. It's a paraphrase that helps us comprehend and understand the text. Here's how it goes. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is. Free and undeserved. That's what grace really is, Prineville. It's God's free... Did you catch that? No, no really, Rory. What do I need to pay? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? Where do I need... Hey, 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 free and undeserved, not works, not labor, not sweat, not toil, not payments, free, through faith, through believing, through trusting, through resting. As it is for the remnant in Israel, so it is for the Gentiles in the Pacific Northwest this morning. J.B. Phillips also put out a great paraphrase. He said, in just the same way, there's at present time a minority chosen by the grace of God. And if it's a matter of the grace of God, it cannot be a question of their actions, especially deserving God's favor, for that would make grace meaningless. The moment we start thinking, thinking it's about our works, we cancel out grace. As Romans chapters 3 and 4 go into, if we receive a payment for some kind of a work, then what we've received was a debt being paid. That person owes us. God owes no man anything. If God gives us anything good, it's his free and undeserved grace. The only thing we deserve is His wrath. We have earned that. We have earned His just wrath poured out against us. Paul is crystal clear here. It's by grace. Grace and works are like oil and water. They cannot mix. Now, while in other places like Romans 3 and 4, there's a contrast between works and faith. That a man's justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or in chapter 4, verse 5, it's 
to him who does not work but believe. We know believing is not a work. It's just a response to God and his grace. Here in this chapter, there's a contrast between uh, works and grace. Works and grace rather than works and faith here. As Douglas Moo said, For grace demands that God be perfectly free to bestow his favor on whomever he chooses. But if God's election were based on what human beings do, his freedom would be violated and he would no longer be acting in grace. The moment we get over to, no, he owes me this. I've done it. I've been faithful. I, I did it. Then his freedom is violated. And God becomes a debtor to you, which just won't happen. And looking at verses 4 through 6 here, one preacher titled this section, For God's sake, let grace be grace. <laughs> I mean, doesn't it seem like that's what verse 6 is saying? And if it's my grace, it's my grace. If it's no longer, like, it's just like Paul saying, Hey, for God's sake, let grace be grace. Now, I'm not trying to be carnal or crass or use God's name in vain. I'm teaching Russell the Ten Commandments right now. And we're going through, don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's like, don't say God. If you go, you're going through, and, and, you know, to, to say, no, it is for God's sake. It really is for God's sake that we let grace be grace. What was the purpose for this remnant being saved, as the divine response says. What does the divine response say there in Romans chapter 11? In 1 Corinthians 11, 15 again. Dang it! That win. What does the divine response say? Verse 4, I have reserved for, for who? A remnant. I have reserved for myself a remnant. Is for my sake, for God's sake, I've reserved this remnant. For my glory, for my own sake, for the sake of my glory, for the sake of my name. If there had been no remnant of my people, I would have been disgraced. The nations would have laughed at me in the covenant that I made with these people who I totally destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But no, by grace, I left a remnant. I took the initiative. I exerted my power. These 7,000 believers who have not bowed the knee, I have kept them and acted for my sake. You know, God can do absolutely whatever he wants with his creation. We thank God for his attributes and his character that we read of him in the scriptures, that he acts with justice and righteousness and mercy. He doesn't owe us anything but wrath. And so in his election, he's free to choose whoever he wants. He's not bound to give his grace to any man, much less to all men. And we've seen in the chapters 9, 10, and 11 that he chooses to give it to some man and to not others in this election that we've spoken of. You can listen to chapter 9 on our website if you you know, need to grow and learn and, and understand God's foreknowledge, God's sovereignty, God's sovereign election. But as Spurgeon says, we got to be careful that our eye doesn't become evil because God's eye is good in His grace. We hear of God's grace to some, and our eye becomes evil against God. And Spurgeon goes on to say, you know, can't I do as I will with my own? I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, quoting from Romans 9. Now I want you to notice the sovereignty of divine grace as illustrated in this text. I was found by them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. You would imagine that if God gave his grace to any, he would wait until he found them earnestly seeking him. You would imagine that God in the highest heavens would say, I have mercies, but I will leave men alone. And when they feel their need of these mercies and seek me diligently with their whole heart, day and night with tears and vows and supplications, then I will bless them, but not before. But beloved, God says no such thing. It's true that he does bless those that cry out to him, but he blesses them before they cry. 
For their cries are not their own cries, but cries which he's put in their lips. Their desires are not of their own growth, but desires which he has cast like good seed into the soil of their hearts. God saves the men that do not seek him. And I love this. This is why I'm quoting Spurgeon here. Oh, wonder of wonders. It is mercy indeed when God saves a sinner, but how much greater mercies when he seeks the lost himself. Amen? It's his mercy that he saves sinners. Even greater mercies when he seeks out the lost himself. He seeked out and sought out the lost in Israel, and he has graciously kept a remnant. And as we'll look in later in chapter 11, because of the rejection of Israel, that grace and mercy has been spread clear over here to the west coast. Praise God, O oh, wonder of wonders. What mercy that he has actually gone out of the way to seek and save the lost. The pagans of Europe. You know, it's hard to think of the, the English people in the English Empire as being barbarians. But during the Roman Empire, the English were considered barbarians. We think of them a proper drink of tea every day. You know, you're like, no, they're the barbarians. And the Gospels made it to England. And the Gospel has crossed the Atlantic. And the Puritans came with the good news of the Gospel. And, and they ministered to the Native Americans. Yes, many travesties, and we won't get into all that, but there was a, a group of men and women that preached the good news to the pagan Native Americans. That good news made its way out west, and praise God, it came to Omaha, Nebraska, where my great-great-grandfather was the last chief of the Omaha Indians, the chief Iron Eyes himself. And his daughters, you know, Rosalie and Suzette, one of the first Native American women physicians, would hear of the gospel and become a believer. Little did they know, you know, one of their great-grandsons would be a preacher in Crimeville by grace. This good news has made it over here. Praise God that he has gone out of his way by his grace to save the pagans. You guys believe that Gina Gish is a, was a pagan without Jesus? Look at her. Over there knitting and with a cute little chair. <laughs> Sorry, Gina, you needed the grace of God. <laughs> you know, but we look at, you know, just people we look at, we know and we love, but without the cross, without grace, we're going to hell. Every one of us, praise God. Praise God for his grace to the remnant. Praise God for his grace to the barbarians. Paul, who knew that he was a, a, a member of that elect remnant to the Jews, would write in Galatians chapter 2, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the flesh, that Christ died in vain. Here's a man of the remnant who says, God's grace is so precious. If any one of us could do something to make our way to heaven, then Jesus would not have had to come in the flesh and live a life of suffering without a home, without a place to lay his head, to be betrayed by his own friends, to be crucified and murdered on a Roman brutal instrument of execution because good old Bill from Pal Butte could have done it all himself. Bill couldn't have done it. Susie couldn't have done it. James couldn't have done it. Yeshua did it. And he didn't die in vain. Amen? Because there's one guy here, and I know there's more than one, that have put their trust in that man's perfect actions for the forgiveness of sins, for the atonement of sins, that our sins could be washed away. The minute we attempt to be justified and made right by the flesh, we become estranged from Christ, Colossians 5, 4 says. Titus tells us, Paul tells Titus, that it's not by our works of righteousness by which we that we've done, 
that we're saved, but it's by His mercy that we've been saved through the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Have you been washed by the Holy Spirit this morning? Yeah, you come here and, you know, we, we enjoy this outdoor service and we're sitting so nicely and we have the right look and, you know, no one's doing anything blatantly, obviously demon-possessed, crashing around on the ground. You know, we have the look down, but if you've been washed on the inside, have you been changed on the inside by the Holy Spirit of God? The moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit washes you and cleanses you. Your sins are atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Your heart is taken out. That heart of stone and a heart of flesh is put back in that can now beat and can know God and can worship God and can have a prayer life and can have a reading life and can have a fellowshipping life and can have a communing with God life. Yeah, you have the external down. What about the internal? Have you received this washing that comes by grace? Warren Wearsby said, It's impossible to mix grace and works, for the one counsels out the other. For God's sake, let grace be grace. Let's rejoice in grace. I love Chuck Smith's book, and I love the title of it. <laughs> Why grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. You who come trying to measure up to God with some attempt to good works and labor, you'll never measure up. Never. On your best day, your best work is a filthy rag. And this this spreads not just to our salvation, but to every aspect of the Christian life. In our parenting, we shepherd our children by grace, and we teach them the gospel of grace. And we don't put a mandate of a bunch of works on them. Going through these Ten Commandments with Russell, I said, but guess what, son? You can't do it. You will fail. But there is one who came after the law that was given. And he could do it, and he did it. And anyone that believes on him, God will see him just as if he never failed in these ways. In our marriages, in our sanctification, in our business practices, in our business life, grace changes everything. Chapter uh, 11, verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Here in verses 7 through 10, there's a contrast between unbelieving Israel and the remnant of Israel who have been elected according to grace. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, and what it seeks is righteousness before God, right standing before God. And they tried, by golly, they tried their darndest. They had every religious practice set up so that they could be righteous before God, but they fell short because they had a heart issue. They had a heart issue. And they didn't obtain what they seek, sought, even though they, they tried. And they sought. And they labored diligently with fasting and with sackcloth. You guys know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to pray. And that Pharisee prays out, God, I thank you that I'm not like this other man. I fast, you know, seven times a week and I give alms and I do this and I do that. And you know what? He did. He did do those things. He did have a regular fasting life. He did give alms. He did recite the, the Pentateuch and have it memorized. And, and that tax collector, he was a filthy sinner ripping on people. But the man that went home righteous that day wasn't the guy that had all the good deeds down, but the man that fell before the throne of God and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner. The elect have obtained it. Chapter 9 tells us why. 
Why have the Gentiles obtained it? And why have the elect obtained it? Because chapter 9 tells us towards the end, because they did not seek it by faith. Brothers and sisters and fellow citizens of the community, if you are not seeking righteousness by faith, by God's grace, you will not obtain it. There are men and women who aren't even trying, who aren't even looking, but just show up to the oasis for a meal because they're hungry and they've fallen on hard times. And Rich will oh, preach man. the gospel to them and show them their depravity and their need for a savior. And this guy who's never even heard of the gospel and has been, you know, perhaps practicing Greek mythology or something like that. And, you know, they come and they see their sinners and they fall on their knees and they repent. Because they... And they receive that forgiveness because they seek it by faith. And we fall into a danger, as we're going to get into in a few verses, a danger of comfort, the comfortable atmosphere of religion. And that causes us to miss that mark. But we'll look at that here. Verse 8, the rest were blinded. Verse 8, just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Paul's quoting from Isaiah here, where Isaiah speaks of a judicial blindness. And guys, I know that it's a little hot, and you know, ready for that burrito bar. Yeah, just a few more minutes, okay? I'm ready for the burrito bar, too. What we read up here is, and this is what, where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is the past, this is the section that should cause us to take off our shoes. You know, we're on holy ground right now, and we come to this passage in humility. Because here, the religious of the religious are given blindness, are given a spirit of stupor. This is what is called in theology, judicial blindness. It is a judgment on God even upon the most religious individual, where he gives people what they want. Unbelieving Israel had been blind, blinded and hardened by God. A spiritual drowsiness, or, or as the language literally means, a numbness resulting from a sting. Because of their, their heart had become hard. And this religious group here had become just like Pharaoh. And God hardened their hearts. This hardening is used as a medical phenomenon in the original language. And it speaks of a forming of a stone as in a bladder. Now, we here at Calvary Chapel of Crip County have had the blessing of most of the men getting kidney stones lately. So when you take communion today, you make sure to confess all those sins, okay? You're next, Joe Saints. <laughs> yeah, guys have been dropping like flies with those kidney stones. But you know, it's just interesting how those stones are formed. Just starts out small, and then just the hardening and the hardening until there's this almost judgment-type pain. That's what the language is speaking of—a hardness of heart that. You know, we were all at a men's retreat a couple of years ago over outside of Sisters, and we were laughing and, and telling kidney stone stories. And, oh, yeah, I know this one guy, and I'm not kidding you, 70% of the men who were in that circle since that time have gotten kidney stones. What does that have to do with anything? I don't know, really. Just watch out, I guess is all I'm saying. Don't harden your heart. <laughs> Don't let this judicial hardening take place. As Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, you hear his voice today. Today, if you're a middle schooler, today, if you're a high schooler, today, if you're a professional in the business world, today, if you're unemployed, today, if you're a senior, today, if you're a patron at the Oasis, today, if you would hear his voice saying, watch out, don't rest on your works, but trust in my grace. Hebrews says, don't harden your heart, as in the rebellion, when some 20,000 Israelites fell in the desert. 
don't harden your heart today. The language also speaks of the hardening that takes place when bones are broken and knit together. God, protect us from hard hearts. Verse 8, we read a, a prophecy from David. He, he quoted Isaiah, and now he quotes David saying, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. This table that David speaks of, it's, can you picture, you know, just a, just a feast set out, something that's a total blessing, thanksgiving, and what was supposed to be a total blessing actually became their downfall. The very things that would make them affluent and wealthy and, and have benefits, those things from chapter 9, verse 5, all those privileges that Paul lists that a Jew has, this table set before them became a recompense, became a stumbling block. As Psalm 106, 5, when we read of this, remember when the children of Israel were in the desert and they began to complain of the manna? Oh, there's bread from heaven that tastes like angels' food. Dang you, God. Dang you for giving us this manna. I wish we had some meat. Remember all the meat we ate in Egypt? And God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. You're going to have so much quail, it's going to be coming out your nose. And the quail came, and they gathered all these quail, you know, eating it ravenously. And God's judgment came upon them that while the, the, the meat was still between their teeth, they felt dead. And the psalmist, in chapter 106, verse 15, says, He gave them their requests, but sent leanness into their soul. Oh, they got fat on the outside, but their soul was starving. And we see that in Israel. Every benefit, spiritual benefit that they could want, but they trusted in the religious aspect of it, rather than that it was given by grace in a giving, loving, merciful God. And there's a warning to us. In this modern day, where we live in a Christian country, sort of, we have these privileges where we stand out in a park and we worship and we talk about Jesus. I'm not afraid that a policeman's going to come and drag me off and imprison me and put the beat down on me. We have these privileges of every man having a Bible, in fact, multiple Bibles, and Bibles on our cell phone, and man. We've got comfortable air-conditioned building that you guys are wondering why we're not in there today. Enjoying that, you know. We've got the heat in the winter time and the comfort and the music at just the right sound level that we want, just the right stuff. Then, you guys, if we are not careful, the blessings that God has given us can become religion, and that religion, the very table that would seem to be a blessing to us that David spoke of can be a recompense. And I'm going to take it one step further today. For some, it already has. For some here, the comfort of the American Christian lifestyle is actually a curse to you right now. And one of the best things that could happen for you is that we would be persecuted for, for Christ. Some of these blessings have caused you to trust in the fact that you have a Bible. Well, I have a Bible. I must be a Christian. Or I live in America. I must be a Christian. My dollar bills have in God we trust on it. I'll show it to you right now. I must be a Christian. I have Caleb on. I must be a Christian. I own commentaries on my bookshelf about the Bible so I can understand Romans rightly. I must be a Christian. If you put any rest or stock at all in your external labors to save you, no matter what they are, you have a cross necklace around your neck. Watch out. It's not by works. It is by grace. And every Sunday, and every Wednesday, and every core group, we leaders remind you 
It's not by works. It's not by the law. It's not by any system that you've made up. It's by grace. You remember that. Lest you fall so quickly into the same trap that millions of Israelites fell into. And they rejected the very God who led them through the wilderness when he stood in front of them and spoke face to face with the body of Jesus Christ. I would do the same thing and you would do the same thing if not by grace. Let's finish the, the chapter out. Let their eyes be darkened. Not the chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10. It's a section. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. The hardening of the heart leads to this blindness of the eyes. And God has allowed it to happen. A spirit of stupor. Just like when, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians tells us, today when the Jews read the law, there's a, a veil over their face. They can't. They don't understand that it's all talking about Jesus. Unless the Holy Spirit removes that veil, they won't be saved. And there's a warning to us today. Gentiles, be so careful. And humble yourself right now before God. Say, Lord, if there's any bit of a veil coming over my eyes, or I'm trusting in myself, or I'm trusting in my riches, or I'm trusting in my race, or I'm trusting in my my lineage. Trusting in the language I speak, I'm trusting. Lord, forgive me. It's by grace and grace alone. May we be humbled by all of this this morning, knowing that it's not by our smart intellect or those external things that we're saved, but by grace. May we not trust in the privileges of religion for our righteousness. May we share the gospel with everyone, knowing that even the worst sinner can be saved. And when we speak to a Jew, let's give them Jesus. May we take risks with our money and our life, that it's for God, for his namesake, and for the furtherance of the kingdom, and may we just offer our bodies up as a living sacrifice this morning to be used by him. Let's pray. Heather, you come on up. Once again, God, we've come to the hook of the book, the glorious chorus of the book of Romans. And if we conclude with anything else, we're missing the theme, we're missing the thread. Lord, that it is by your grace that we are saved, and it's by your grace that we'll ever make it to see you face to face on that day. Not by works, God. It is so good to respond to the Lord as he speaks to us. It just shows that today I've heard his voice, and today I will not harden my heart. Today I, I, I respond to God. And today if you're here and you have heard his voice, and he's convicted you in your heart that you've been trusting in all the external things that you can think of to save you. Even perhaps the religious things that are blessings to us. The, the Christian books on your shelf, or the music you listen to, or the neck, cross necklace around your neck. Or just anything that you've been just trusting and saving you. Man, today God, by His grace, He spoke to you and said, don't you trust in that. And today, if you've heard His voice, you can respond and say, Lord, I won't trust in that. I won't trust in any other thing but in the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus Christ and the victory that he won when he rose from the dead. And if that's you today, you respond right now. 
Don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Don't develop that stone, as it were, in the heart. But right now, respond and just say, just lift your hand where you're at. You can respond to Jesus and just say, Lord, that's me. I felt like Rory was speaking right to me today, God. Because, God, I've been trusting in my works. I've been trusting in my morality. I've been trusting in that I don't watch rated R movies. I've been trusting in that I don't listen to 104.1, but I listen to Caleb, or I have that Christian radio on sometimes. Or I trust in that you know, I listen to mellower worship music, or I, I favor that, or just whatever. Man, that's the religious stuff that we fall into. Or maybe you both won't trust in just your works. I'm a good person, by gosh. And you would hear Romans chapter 3 this morning. If there is none good, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God in his own strength. That your mouth might be stopped today and you would realize, I am not good. Only he is good. Today you can receive his goodness into your heart and into your life. And you can be washed. And even though your sins are like mud, you'll be washed as white as snow. And if you want to be washed today, if you want to just renounce salvation by works, just lift up your hands where you're at. If you want to just step out of, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, and if you'd like to step into, he did it, he did it, and I receive what he's done, just respond to me, lift up your hand, just say, Jesus, that's me, the Lord sees you, amen, step out of works today, people, by God's grace, he's drawn you here. Book to be stepped out of and pulled out of that snare before it wraps tightly around your ankle. By grace today, he's brought you here to pull you out of that trap of works-based rightness before God. Right there where you're at, just receive his grace. Anybody else? Maybe you're here and you've listened to a lot of sermons. You've listened to a lot of Calvary Chapel sermons. I've heard this before. I've heard this before. I've heard this before. Yeah, but have you repented and have you responded to this message? Have you believed this message? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Some of you younger kids here, that I was in your shoes, raised in the church. It's probably until I was 14 that I really understood I'm not saved by being raised in a Christian home. I'm saved by what Jesus has done. What a day for you young teenagers raised in a Christian home to put your own faith in Jesus and to receive the forgiveness of sin. Is that you today? Anybody else, just respond. If you hear his voice today, if you turn away from him, the next time you hear this message, it will be easier to turn away from him easier the next time, and easier the next time, and, and pretty soon, God will give you the spirit of stupor, and blindness, and hardness of heart. Lindsay and I had a childhood friend this week that she graduated with, I remember having him in my class, and saw on Facebook this week, he had a knee surgery, common knee surgery. And had some kind of clot in his home. And this clot, as he slept on the couch, this clot killed him. 
and his wife went to wake him up and he wouldn't wake up another high school friend this month friend of mine's fond memories of him marriage problems separated from his wife just separation hadn't been going on for long and he went and he turned to alcohol for comfort then when he called her and it was not a good conversation and hung up the phone went into his bedroom put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger and when I heard that news I wept I wept. I wish I could have had another opportunity to share with Robert the good news of Jesus. And you know what? You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you'll get in a tip with your wife tonight. She'll go for a long drive and you'll turn to some other God for comfort. You know what? Tonight you might be standing before God, the righteous judge, giving an account for your life. And he'll say, what have you done with my son Jesus? And you'll say, oh God, I've heard a lot of sermons about Jesus. And he'll say, but have you believed in Jesus? Oh God, I've listened to a lot of music about Jesus. Oh, but have you put your trust and faith in my son Jesus? That his blood can wash away your sins. No, God. No, I've not done that. And he will say, away from me. You worker of iniquity, I never knew. And my plea this morning, the elders plea of this church, the leadership of this church, is that you, just today, would surrender to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord God. We're going to take communion. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.